Good morning slash afternoon slash evening. Welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our co-host, Yiting Wang, a resident China sustainability specialist, uh, Lena Ben Abdallah, a PhD student in international relations at the University of Florida, cannot make it for this episode, unfortunately. Yiting, how are you doing? I'm doing well,、uh, except we just came out of a. Another smog air apocalypse in Beijing. So is it will get better. But that means more work for you. I hope. I hope people <laughs> look at the smog and say, "Man, we should hire Eating to help us with sustainability." <laughs> they they need to hire a thousand of me at least. <laughs> well, at least one. Let's start with one, and then we'll get we'll get, try to hire nine hundred and ninety nine more. But well, I'm sorry to I'm sorry to hear that. And、uh, although I make light of the air apocalypse, it actually um, um, can be quite serious,、um, and especially in terms of, of, of effects on on human health. I hope you and and everyone and everyone in the city、um, didn't suffer too much this this time around. Oh, and oh my gosh, wait a minute! It's it's the National People's Congress between now and March 16th, right? Yeah, it opened today. That's a terrible time to have an apocalypse. I think it's a great time to get everybody's attention. <laughs> Welcome well, to Beijing. <laughs> Welcome to Beijing. Oh, okay. All right. Moving on. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duru, seeks to connect development workers, professional development resources, and work opportunities in Africa. <laughs> On a quest to diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. A lot of China-Africa research is done through on-site interview, but what are the strengths and limitations of that kind of research? That is to say, how do people on the ground produce the knowledge they share with researchers and scholars? To help us answer that question, we have invited on the pod Derek Sheridan, a, a PhD candidate at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, and a previous guest of this pod, actually. Mr. Sheridan's dissertation research looks at the China-Africa relationship from the perspective of people involved in the micropolitics of different forms of Chinese business in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, the formation of interpersonal relationships, negotiations over the value of both people, and the commodities exchanged between them. And the everyday production of knowledge regarding Tanzania, Africa, and China's place in the world. He just presented his research at the Harvard East Asian Studies Conference. Derek, welcome back to the pod. Thank you for inviting me back. Not a problem. Any time. Once a year is about good for us. Okay. <laughs> and Derek, how was the conference, and how did your research fit in with other speakers? And are you now an Asian Studies scholar? Yeah, that's a that's a good question.、Um, when I got accepted to the conference, so I was, you know, obviously happy because, you know, there's a concern there. Okay, well, you know, we have this this network of scholars doing China-Africa relations, but how does it then look when you try to go back into area studies proper, whatever that may be these days? And and oh, be、uh, accepted, Derek, sorry, sort of, could you, can you hear me? Yeah, could you tell us area studies versus China-Africa studies and and the whole. Debate about whether China Africa studies is actual area studies. Well, I mean, I think this this is a good question, and it, it actually. But 
something happens during this conference, I think that sort of shows the direction area studies is going. Um, because I think most area studies, especially East Asian studies, um, has a very strong um, concentration in the humanities for the most part. Whereas social scientists, you know, many years ago began to become more disciplinized and became political scientists became more had more emphasis on uh, methodology. Um, so, but nonetheless, um, when I was accepted um, to the uh, Harvard conference. I was the only one in the conference presenting on China-Africa related topics. However, I, I had been placed on a panel about diaspora. And so I was with um, someone who worked on Chinese Christians in Germany, for example. And so at first I thought, oh, okay, so this is the way they're seeing this topic of global China in the global South. Um, this is a diaspora question. But as I discovered, um, our discussant, um, is a woman named Karen Thornberg, who is a professor of um, comparative literature and East Asian studies at Harvard. And I was told by one of the organizers when I arrived, oh, you should know, your discussant is actually giving the keynote speech for the whole conference, and it's actually about China-Africa. <laughs> and so the keynote speech for the East Asian studies conference was uh, about China-Africa. And and that was quite nice in many ways because it kind of lent a little bit of legitimacy from sort of the heart of <laughs> the field of East Asian studies toward the importance of looking at global China to understand China or look at global Asia to understand Asia. And so that was that way it was encouraging um, to, have, to have that as, as, as a keynote. It's freaking Harvard, yeah. I imagine it would be encouraging that your topic of research would be uh, the would be the keynote on um, how and what what was that speaker trying to say in terms of how China or how Chinese people's experiences overseas reflect back to China? What what was the the general argument? Well. Um I mean, the, the the beginning of her argument was about how, in comparative literature, which I know very little about, um, there has been a general shift towards this um, idea of tr trans-regionalism, and so trying to look at you know movements you know globally. Um, and so for herself, she is doing a series of books, multiple books about China in the Indian Ocean, and so apparently she's also working on a book on Indonesia as well, and so. I guess it was a natural extension for her to also look at Africa, but her, her presentation kind of had two parts. The first part was the kind of overview of the myths and realities of China-Africa relations, which we're all familiar with. So, and of course, to that audience, very few people in the audience really knew much about Africa. And it was actually kind of a real important wake-up call for me, um, just how much basic, you know, geographical lack of knowledge there is, even among very educated people, if you're not working in the African field. And so, you know, in well-meaning. So I would tell you, oh, I work in Tanzania. Oh, really? Where, where is that? You know, oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's in East Africa. Oh, okay. So I realized, okay, I need to change my presentation. I need to have a basic, you know, map, geography, basic, you know, I need to like give some people some background because otherwise it's not really under a lot of people's radar. Um, especially if you're someone, you know, say looking at, um, you know, early 20th century Chinese literature. You're maybe not looking at China-Africa relations. So, 
Um, it was, and I went to a Columbia East Asia conference as well. And it also kind of reinforced the idea that, well, you know, those working on China African relations know a lot about these, these interchanges, but those who are not have still need to be educated. Um, but Mathunber, um, the second half of her talk was basically looking at over about a, over a thousand years of literary production, um, about these relationships. So she looked at Chinese writing on Africa in fiction, mostly fiction, and then also looked at recent African fiction on China. Um, and some of the books she talked about, some of the short stories she talked about were things I had never heard of before, and but were very interesting. Um, but of course, you know, as I was talking to her afterwards, she says, yes, there's a debate in the comparative literature about, you know, how wide is the circulation of, of these kinds of books? You know, might film be more significant? You know, there's, there's other media in which people understand these relationships. But nonetheless, it was, you know, it's encouraging that she's doing this work and she's going forward. And I, and it's not just her, actually. There's another um, a woman in um, East Asian Studies, uh, Lydia Leo, um, who's well known for writing about the encounter between the British and the Chinese in the 19th century and about the translation of international law in Chinese. She's also apparently working on a project about Africa and China. And so there's a way in which people who are sort of like really established people in the field of China studies are kind of then kind of moving into China-African relations, probably because they, you know, they, they know it's an important topic, but they don't know a lot about it. And this is good because it, it, it's sort of creating new centers of legitimacy for pursuing this research, which I think is really nice. Um, so it's, 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 it's encouraging, um, for people who are kind of in positioned in between, uh, area, you know, two areas and doesn't, don't really know how to position themselves when, you know, in terms of job market and, and questions like that. Uh, that is incredible. I am delighted to hear that there's so much interest in China, Africa beyond, um, the usual suspects. Yeah. And, and I would be very interested to see um, that kind of research and 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 any and the any bibliography produced uh, about the about these sorts of exchanges. I remember um, for my own research uh, trying to look at uh, I guess some a lot of a lot of um, a lot of Africanists are are. Aware of Chinese Gordon in Sudan, um, and and yeah, just a nineteenth-century British um, China and different um, col British colonies and, and the interactions between um, the 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 small interactions between the peoples of from those regions there is quite interesting. Uh, but I'm I'm so happy to to see. Uh, these sorts of questions being asked and this sort of research being pursued. Um, well, well, we're I. You were the only China Africa person invited, or the only China Africa person who got a speaking slot. Um, I I don't know how they how they did their um, their uh, selection process, so I don't know who else applied and didn't get in. Um, so I, I couldn't tell you whether um, okay. I was the only China Africa person who applied, I, and I don't, and I haven't seen their 2015 schedule. Okay. I mean, I was there in 2014, and there was there was an historian doing work on Silk Road stuff, but I mean, it's, it's related in, in, in an indirect way. 
but um, I haven't, I, I couldn't tell you just off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I, I know there have been others, but um, last few years, very few. And could you, year, I mean, like one. Could, could you introduce your research to our listeners? What did you present? Um, well, I mean, I, I just came back um, about a month ago from Tanzania, and I, I've been there for 15 months. And so, um, as is usually the case for um, anthropologists who come back to the field, it's really hard in the sort of the first few months to really say, okay, what is my research about? And, and the reason is that, you know, where you have you collect so much data, um, so much ethnographic data that you kind of need a moment to kind of go through and think, okay, well, what, what, what do I have? What can I present? Um, I know you were doing the description from my Brown website earlier, and that's more or less vaguely still what the research is. But what I think I'm really kind of thinking of now is the way that international relationships or transnational relationships are kind of um, worked out in a way in interpersonal relationships. So, for example, if, um, if there's this discourse about China and Tanzania as friends, right, um, you know, friendship, well, what is that? What does what do actual interpersonal friendships then look like? And it's an, and it's a relevant question to ask because because people to people relations are seen to be extremely important to the larger relationship. You know, one bad event or scandal or story can have wide repercussions um, for these relationships. And so everyone, you know, it's the cliche of you know everyone's an ambassador, right? Um, and so I feel that these sites of interaction are have a heightened significance because of the way that language of interpersonal closeness and intimacy is so central to the, you know, to the facilitating international politics. Uh, and so, you know, in the dissertation, I think I'm going to be looking at different sites and how they speak to these larger issues. So questions of, you know, friendship, uh, interpersonal trust, um, issues of, uh, so for example, um, like what, kind of privileges and responsibilities does uh, an expatriate Chinese have in places like Tanzania or elsewhere in, in the continent? And these are not easy questions to answer because there's debates. You know, um, people have different expectations about, well, okay, China has given lots of aid and assistance to Tanzania. Um, so therefore, why am I being, why is this official coming to my business and asking me to pay them a bribe? And so you see a lot of discourse about, okay, well, we've given so much, but why are we, why do they want more? And so, and so you have on that side, some people saying that, but then on the other side, you have others say, well, no, no, when you come to Tanzania, you have to think of yourself as a guest. You have to have different kinds of expectations. We're not imperialists. We're, you know, we can't interfere, but this is like, it's a real active like debate that happens. And I think it's quite interesting because it's, it's, it's very much unclear about sort of how one positions themselves and how what's the proper way to act when one's abroad. And so it's a really productive site, I think, to look at these, these questions. And so that's kind of the way I'm approaching it at the moment. But there's still a lot to be done because I still getting my thoughts together. I'm still trying to review my field notes. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a slow process, but at the moment, that's the best I can say, I think. Eating? Any follow-ups? And uh, we might have lost eating. That's okay. Thank you. All right. So, uh, Derek, I wanted to ask about uh, 
one of the things that that really uh, interested me about your research was when when we first met a few years ago, and I shared the the peanut seller story, and and you shot it down. And I'm wondering for our audience if you could could tell the peanut seller story to the audience and what your current research says about that story. I mean, this is interesting um, because because I'm trying to remember because you, you said you had a peanut story um, and I had a peanut story. Um, we, we, we both had peanut stories, right? And we, so we had to bring them together. But um, I, I don't remember your peanut story, but I do remember the peanut story that I heard was before I, before I was even doing the research on China, Tanzania, or China, Africa more generally, um, in my department, um, there was a colleague of mine from Tanzania, and this is really how I got into this topic. And um, at the time, I was doing research in Taiwan, and he says, oh, you do research on Chinese things, so let me tell you about how much I know about China in Tanzania. And one of the stories he told me was that, you know, oh, I mean, he began talking about you know, the, the history of China, Tanzania, the Dizara, and um, his own grandfather had met Mao Zedong, apparently, as well. Oh, my gosh. Has, um, has his, his grandfather was a, was, um, a, a religious teacher, um, Islamic, and apparently there was a delegation in the 60s, and he met Mao Zedong. Um, and apparently there was a conversation between him and Mao where Mao said, well, you know, this religion thing is very... Very, you know, it's backwards. We need to move on beyond that. I, I don't know. I mean, this is maybe I don't know. When, did that dialogue happen? It's, it's interesting to think. But and my friend um, here, he he had not heard that story until very, until much, much later. It was more like, oh, by the way, you know, I, I met Mao Zedong back in the sixties. You know, I mean, it's possible. I mean, it's likely. I mean, I, but um, but so basically, like my my friend had felt like he had a very long connection with China. He had a very long-standing interest. Um, and also because the Chinese government um, would translate um, these traditional stories into Swahili, like the journey to the West, um, and he would read about them. And so he had a, had a very, very strong interest. And so he said, but you know, but so, have- sorry, sorry to interrupt. Could you just tell our listeners what the journey to the West is? Oh, it's the, I mean, it's the, uh, it's the, I mean, the, the classic story. I don't know when it was, when it was composed, but it's about, um, a journey to to India, I believe, to um, collect Buddhist artifacts, and the sort of the popular character of, of the story is the Monkey King, and I think there have been multiple uh, multiple document, I mean, multiple film versions made of this. Many series have been made of this um, in, in in the Chinese speaking world, um, and some of them actually have been translate have been broadcast in Tanzania. I remember I was walking with. Uh, a Chinese friend of mine in a really rural district of Tanzania um, in the south, and uh, this man greeted my friend as a shifu, and uh, my friend thought, like, "Oh, he must have he must have watched the he must have watched uh, Journey to the West." <laughs> so I made that connection. But whatever the the case was, um, my my the the friend I had been talking about before, the different guy in my department. Um, he said that because you know he read these stories when he was young, um, he had a very strong affection to Chinese culture. But he said recently, though, um, things have been changing. Um, his his uncle um, lives in Kariakou, which is the hello. 
Hello? Eating? Okay, hear me now? Yes, a little bit. Uh, there was some static there at the moment. But... Uh, may, may I continue? Or... I, I Keep talking, Eating. Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. oh, I want to see if E.T. No, Damn it. I'll try next. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. All right. Uh, please continue, Derek. No, yeah. So, um, so my my friend, his uncle, lives in Carriaco, and Carriaco is the the whole is the wholesale district of Tanzania, and not just Tanzania, but East Africa more generally. So you have Traders from um, Uganda, from Rwanda, from Congo, from Zambia all come to Dar es Salaam to purchase goods, and you know many of these goods are produced in China. Um, and a lot of Chinese um, wholesalers do business there. And this is over the last ten years. And so his uncle, so when he would visit his uncle in Dar es Salaam, he would see Chinese everywhere, and this was like a very new thing. And he said that there was a bit of a from his, the way he explained it to me, he said that there was a bit of um, animosity, not really open animosity, but kind of grumbling about the Chinese doing this business because apparently they, they, people would say, well, you know, Europeans, um, you know, when they were in Tanzania, they would, uh, they, they only stuck to certain kinds of business. Even Indians, the Indians, the Indians had certain kinds of business that they would do and certain kinds of business they would not do. But the Chinese, they do every business. And so they're even selling peanuts or cassava. And so that's the first time I heard the story about the peanut. And I thought, wow, that's quite interesting. And then, though, eventually, you know, as I began to, even before I went to Tanzania, as I was doing, um, you know, preliminary reading of the literature, I discovered very quickly this is a highly unlikely story. Uh, um, most of the Chinese who go to um, Africa have some level of capital to at least do wholesale trading, um, or their employees working for companies that do um, things like mining, for example. But someone selling peanuts on the street seemed to me very unlikely. And the more I read about these other rumors, you know, the, the prison labor stories, I realized, okay, this is probably a rumor. And I felt very confident that this was probably a rumor. And then I asked my friend, so this peanut story, like, did you see them selling peanuts? They're like, oh, no, he had heard it from somewhere. And then we both thought, okay, maybe this is a rumor. But we both thought, okay, well, you know, this, this, you know, but it does say something, you know, even if it's wrong. Factually, it says something about the perception of, of you know, sort of Chinese moving into every economic sector. And so it's, it's an exaggeration, but it's a, it's a myth which says something about the world, and which is the way a lot of anthropologists kind of approach these stories. And so, you know, dead and gone, dead and gone, I thought, okay, there's no, no one selling peanuts. And when I got to Tanzania, I was even more convinced, okay, there's no way anyone here has sold peanuts. But what was interesting is that I was sharing this story once with a with a man who was he worked in a kind of a managerial position with a state-owned company. Um, and I was talking to him about the, the stories I heard and I thought he was going to just say oh, you know, yeah, this is ridiculous. But actually he said, well, wait, wait, wait a second. It's possible. And he began to say, well, you know, maybe um, there was a person one day who he had been doing a business like, you know, selling shoes or um, some other small business, and maybe something bad happened. Maybe uh, stuff got robbed. Maybe um, 
a shipment didn't come in, he couldn't pay bills. And in order to get him through a few days, he just sold peanuts for a few days. And so that could have been possible. But, you know, and then he, and then he continued. The problem is, you know, people see one thing and then they make generalizations about that and think everyone does that. So in a way, he kind of also said, oh, this is, you know, a misunderstanding of what Chinese do in Tanzania. But he also lent credence to the idea of maybe it's possible. Um, this story wasn't true, though, but nonetheless, someone could speculate and sort of elaborate on a thing which was not true, <laughs> which is quite interesting. You know, people, things which are not true can become the basis for conversation. And I have other examples of this, too, in my research, where myths kind of take on their own social lives as discussion pieces, which are ways to talk about larger relations more generally. But but back to like the case, this, this situation itself, um, I was nonetheless really curious, though, about you know where the story was coming from, because I also had other people tell me about a peanut seller. And so there was a, a man who sold shoes, um, a Tanzanian man, and he says, oh, yeah, there's just Chinese selling selling peanuts um, in Posta. And Posta is like the downtown area of Dar es of Salaam. And I was like, really? Like where? You know, which street? Like, oh no, you go, you go, you'll, you'll see, you'll see. And you know, I went there. Nobody was selling peanuts. But, and you know, it's sort of like one of the things I had wanted to do when I went to Tanzania this year, last year was to try to track down rumors because I was really interested in kind of the social life of rumors, like, you know, where do they come from? Who says it to who? And, and basically, um, I had another conversation with, with my colleague who at this point was already back in Tanzania. And he said, no, 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 this story is true. His uncle told him that, that, you know, that he had eaten those peanuts. That, <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, that, that basically there was a guy, you know, he would set up every night, every night around like four or five, he would set up a cart. He had some kind of special spice and the peanuts were really good. It was like a really kind of a special flavor he was using. You know, so this idea of like these mysterious flavors from the East, you know, like it was like these really good, tasty peanuts. And his uncle had eaten them. I'm like, oh, okay. If your uncle has told you he ate these peanuts, this story must have some kind of realism. I mean, it must be true. I mean, you can't, you cannot imagine you eating peanuts. And so I tried to track down his uncle, um, which is very difficult. He was a very busy man, and you know, and I was very busy too. And, and you know, every Friday would, would roll along, but he was at the mosque all day, and so I wasn't able to talk to him. And then he'd be out the rest of the week. But I finally tracked him down. You know, I thought. Why am I wasting so much time doing this story about peanuts? But I finally got to him and he said, yes, um, there was a, you know, a Chinese man who sold peanuts, um, in Posta, um, but that was in the 1970s. <laughs> so, um, it was true, but it was in the 1970s. And this actually leads to a whole other story. Um, I don't know if you want me to. Go into the story, but I would like you to go into the story. But yeah, I said like in the 1970s there was a man who sold peanuts, and this perked my ears up because I had already known by this point that there had been a small community of Chinese in this in the 60s and 70s who lived in Tanzania. They were not related at all to the Tazara project. They were not related at all to the PRC. They they were the second generation of Chinese who had come to Dar es Salaam. Um, as early as the 1910s. Um, and they were a very small community there. And so I, I thought, okay, well, this must have been one of them. And so there was a, a man who owns a, a Chinese restaurant in Dar es Salaam. He, he is born, he was born in Zanzibar. 
Um, so there's also Chinese in Zanzibar, the second, third generation, and most of them are from, you know, from, from Guangzhou. And, but he had spent, he had gone to college in Dar es Salaam in the 70s, and he had lived in, in mainland Tanzania for 30 years. And so I went to him to ask him, you know, have you ever heard a story about a, you know, a man who was selling peanuts in the 70s? Like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I remember him. And he said, yeah, yeah, he would, he slowly, he did, he did that, but he didn't know who he was and he didn't know what had happened to him. But what was interesting is that he, he wasn't, this man who was selling peanuts was not from Guangzhou. He was actually from mainland China. Um, and I went, what? He's like, yeah, yeah, he, he came from mainland China, but what well, was he, was he, was he like somehow involved with, with Tazara? And like, no, and he said he, he didn't know and he didn't know what happened to him. Like he, he had come somehow mysteriously from mainland China in the sixties was selling peanuts um, on the streets of Dar es Salaam and then just disappears and moves on. And that's the end of the story, except the memory of it stays and then gets misinterpreted and then becomes a way to talk about the contemporary Chinese presence in Africa. So you can kind of see the way um, there are these traces, historical traces that become available, so to speak, for talking about contemporary issues. Um, so the story was true, but it wasn't true in the way that I, that we were thinking that it was true. Like, um, as far as I know, there's no Chinese today selling peanuts, but there was someone selling peanuts in the 70s, though we don't know the context of what he was doing, why he was there, or where he went after that. And so I, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting kind of, a, <laughs> uh, you know, result of following the story. Did you ever figure out what spices he was using? I have no idea. And I, I thought it was a great value added peanuts, right? It's just not plain peanuts that they got imported or produced locally. Yeah, you know, he cooked. He cooked the peanuts. There were, you know, he was cooking them. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. So I mean, it's true, but not true in a sense. You know, it's true, but not true. If you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's Derek, still. Derek, I am very intrigued. Sorry to interrupt, Tom, but I'm very intrigued by this notion of, um, you know, the the Europeans are, are supposed to. Um, be doing one kind of business and the Indians, the other, and, you know, they were just all supposed to o o occupy one particular space and no more. Um, so I wonder if you could maybe help us unpack that assumption or that, um, or that, you know, a, a gentle rule of game. Why is that? And, and therefore, you know, what is China's place? Yeah, this is a very, this is a very interesting question because uh, when, Especially spending lots of time in, in Carrier Co., which is the wholesale market. There's a lot of talk, especially among Tanzanians, about what kind of people should be doing what kind of business, right? And, um, and even people in Carrier Co. who do wholesale trading with the Chinese, you know, they, they buy from Chinese and then they, they resell to other Tanzanians or to Africans from other neighboring countries. Um, a, a frequent kind of Grumble. And I say grumble. I don't know if you just complain or grumble because I mean, because they're still doing business with the people they're complaining about. So this is important to remember. Uh, is that why are people opening shops? Like, why are they opening shops here? Like, okay, you can open up, you know, uh, whole, you can open up storehouses, you know, by the airport or by the port. And then we'll go to the storehouse and we'll purchase from them. But why do they have to have shops? And the problem is that, okay, if there's a shop there, um, customers will be able to compare prices and then, you know, lower the, the overall price of the goods that are being sold. Um, but oftentimes, the, um, the comparison was made to how they, how 
the Tanzanian wholesale traders imagined Europeans or Americans would do business. And so frequently it's like, oh, you know, why, why, why don't you Americans come into business? You know, you know, because you Americans, you do big business. You do oil, you do, you do large, you do factories. Um, but the Chinese, they just do small business. And the thing is, I, and then I would say, oh, well, you know, there's actually a bunch of Chinese factories on the edge of town. No, 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 no. There's no factories here in, in, in Tanzania. You think they're factories, but they're actually just wholesale um, storehouses. And so um, there's a disbelief that even though there are more and more um, foreign investors from China getting involved in light manufacturing, um, it's the, the fact that there are still people doing wholesale trade is seen to be um, kind of a violation of market order. Like the idea is that, you know, if you come here to, to sell, you, there's certain things you should be doing, certain things you should not be doing. And so sometimes outside of the wholesale market, there people will say, oh, the Chinese are doing petty trade, which is not really true because it's not very economically viable to do retail. Um, but it's more viable to do wholesale. And so most people will do wholesale. But there's a perception outside of the marketplace that, oh, the Chinese are doing these um, small street side trade. Oh, you know, the Chinese are, are like petty traders, wama chinga. They're on the streets selling their goods, which, again, is another kind of interesting procession because there are people who work for wholesale shops who will go around to different local wholesale shops to try to get people to buy their goods. And so they might have samples of shoes or light bulbs in their backpack. And so um, external, so out, they look like the Wamachinga, which are the, the, the young men who will, you know, sell retail on the street by carrying, you know, some shoes around. So they, they, they visually look similar, but, um, one is, um, their stock is what's on their pans. And for the Chinese selling, their stock is, is this huge, you know, warehouse, but they're just going around with samples. So visually it looks very low, so to speak. Um, and so a lot of these rumors, the idea that they're low, but even among Chinese are doing business, there's also a lot of talk about, you know, there's things we should do, things we should not do. And so wholesale traders will, will tell me, oh, you know, we can't do retail. Otherwise, how are people going to eat? There's nowhere they're going to eat. The idea that if we did retail, we'd drive everyone out of the market, which I'm not entirely sure is true. But there's the idea that um, that certain boundaries have to be respected. Um, but but that but this is in the context of the whole of the wholesale market. Um, if you look, if you take a wider perspective, actually, um, there is you know people do say, oh, you know, the Chinese are building roads, are bringing employment, but it just it really depends on where you're situated. In Tanzania, we're in the market to sort of see who's competing against who where. And another thing, an important thing to add is that the complaints about Chinese opening shops is mostly among Tanzanians who also own shops. <laughs> and, and so there are people who are, who themselves go, or more often they have relatives who go to China to buy shoes directly. And so they're in direct competition um, with the Chinese wholesalers. But the retailers, especially retailers who don't own their own shops, they love Chinese doing this because they don't have, they don't have to go to China to buy these wholesale goods, they can just get them here. And so they're able to have good partnerships with some wholesale traders because they're able to buy, you know, some of them even design shoes, for example. So I had a friend who, he, he every day he kind of watches what people are wearing. He designs shoes. He gives it to his friend who owns a, who owns a shop and he's able to commission um, different kinds of shoes produced in China from the street corner in, in Tanzania. And so it really depends on your position, you know, as to whether these boundaries are I, I I would like to add though that in 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 certain um, uh, in certain African countries with 
with colonial histories where, where labor was quite stratified, which is basically any colonial country, uh, there are positions that cert that I mean, there there are um, there are professions that that are ethnic, for lack of a better term, and and it and beyond competition, there there's a historical memory that that certain positions that are taken taken by certain ethnic groups and 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 it could be Lebanese, it could be Indian, they sh they have to stay in their lane. And there are certain positions that are um, that are ours. So if I'm going to speak for as a Tanzanian national, there are certain positions, there are certain professions that are ours that foreigners cannot take. And and that feeling and that historical memory, that's something that uh, that Chinese people entering into these spaces is is particularly galling. And it and I. I would like to ask, like, is that true, or is it just a function of competition? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think. I mean, it's. I think it's really hard to sort of reduce these kinds of things to either, oh, is this an historical explanation, or is this. I mean, I think that these all these things all kind of come together. But I mean, absolutely. I mean, historically, you know, sort of racialized lines of who does what was very much uh, a technique of you know colonial governments. And in you know in Dar es Salaam, there was very clearly a division of space that the that the, um, the British government tried to enforce the Germans at first as to which was you know the European district, and this district is the Indian district, and this district is the uh, the, the African the native district, and um, and there often was a, a discourse among um, the British government that we have to protect the natives from exploitation from the Asians and, and that the context of those Asians meant the Indians, right? And so there was a very, there was often a very distinct separation. But I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, historically, the, 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 the people who did um, wholesale trading in Tanzania prior to the arrival of um, Chinese wholesalers was, was very um, Indian dominated or South Asian um Term Indians use, so I'll use Indian. It's very Indian dominated um, marketplace. And that's changed a lot. And how it's changed, um, people have different stories. Um, in some sense, um, other um, um, African, and by African, I mean, you know, African descendant um, groups came into Dar es Salaam. So the Chaga, for example, from northern Tanzania are very well known for doing business all across Tanzania. And so they dominate some parts of the marketplace. More recently, um, People from southern Tanzania are, are sort of in the clothes trade. Um, but another narrative that people told me, and I, I'm not really able to verify, but some people told me this narrative is that it was the Chinese who basically broke the monopoly of the Indians. <laughs> that basically, you know, Indians, um, the idea is that they, they profit through cooperation and raising the price, but the Chinese co compete against each other. So they, they lowered the prices. And so they came in, broke the monopoly of the Indians and then gave opportunities to, um, Tanzanians to get into the business. But now the Tanzanians are doing so well because they can go to China directly that now the Chinese are kind of being forced out of the market now because they don't know the market as well. They can't adapt as well as Tanzanians can. But also that because prices have gone so low, the market's pretty much dead for everyone. So that's like a really kind of a short story like people would tell me about. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's these, these historical ideas about division of labor, but they, they do get they, they do get broken as things change. Um, and so there's a, mm -hmm. a, a mix it's of things that happen. It's interesting to hear... Yeah, it's interesting to hear how the Tanzanians are 
and they're very actively taking part in creating new categories um, or, or delineating, um, you know, um, I guess, market roles. Um, and I, I'm also just wanted to ask, um, you mentioned um, you mentioned that you've, you've had um, you're talking about a few sites of um, these kinds of interactions, um, personal interactions. Um, so I'm wondering if you've other examples um, that might you know, shed some different light on this um, relationship between international relations and interpersonal relationships. Um, well, I think I, think, I, think I was, um, I think I was mentioning with the Winslow earlier that there's still a lot of uh, chapters in my dissertation that I'm still working on and that um, mm -hmm. there, there's some, there's some material that I wanted to kind of uh, save for later. Yeah. Also, yeah, but, through here there's a martial art story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I think I think I mean I think a good way to transition is that um, we were talking about the about this peanut this peanut seller, and I mentioned the uh, the the this community of Chinese who had been in Tanzania for about a hundred years. Um, would it be okay for me to talk about that? Yes, we have yeah. we have an let's we have about let's say fifteen minutes left. So yeah. get into it. Right. Um, so you know, going back to the, you know the, that that story. Um, what? Well, how did I know about this community of Chinese who were there in um, Dar es Salaam, you know, a hundred years ago? Is what happened is I heard a story um, from. Um, someone who, uh, someone from China who was working in, in, in Tanzania at the time about a, a person they knew who, who was working for a Chinese company who had a dream. Um, and, and in, in, in this person's dream, she saw a cemetery, okay? And it was very real, must have been very real to her because, um, she was later talking about it to staff from the Chinese embassy, asking, you know, are there any sort of old abandoned Chinese cemeteries in, in, in Dar es Salaam? And, and, to, and there is a cemetery, um, that's very well known and very well kept, um, near the, the airport. And that is the, the expert cemetery. And that's the cemetery for, um, Chinese engineers um, who died during the construction of the uh, Tazara Railway. And that's a very well-known cemetery. But what she had seen in her dream was a different cemetery. And the staff at the embassy said, oh, actually, um, come to think of it, there was a, uh, a Buddhist monk who had visited us a few years back telling us about a old abandoned cemetery that he found. And so... Um, they put her in contact with this monk, and this Buddhist monk um, is the the head monk at a, a Buddhist temple in Upanga, which is the um, a very Indian district of uh, Dar es Salaam. And to put it in the context, is um, there was a group of Sri Lankan um, settlers in Tanzania about you know 100 years ago, and they started the first Buddhist temple on the African continent, which is in Dar es Salaam. Um, and 
um, they've had different people running this place, but the when the current man came, he's from Sri Lanka, um, he had heard stories about an old Buddhist cemetery in, in, in Darasalam, Dar um, presumably containing the remains of Sri Lankans who were there in the, in the 1920s. And he, he looked all over the city, but he couldn't find it. But in the process, he was directed towards this old Chinese cemetery. And basically, right near Carrier Cove, the wholesale market that I, that I was just talking about, um, there is a, a large uh, Muslim cemetery that um, belonged to an ethnic group called the Manyama, who migrated to Dar es Salaam back in the early 20th century. And they were given land to sort of to bury their dead. And inside the cemetery, there's a little plot, which they in turn gave to some Chinese to use. Um, and so this was, you know, very interesting. Um, and, you know, it started off as like the first person died like in 1919, and then eventually more in the 40s, and the last person um, who passed was in 78. And in 1950, a, a, an enclosure was built around this plot, a white wall, and then the words Chinese Cemetery were replaced on the front. And it was about 30 different individuals, um, mostly from um, Taiping in, in, in Guangzhou. And um, people, and the, the woman who discovered the cemetery, um, when she went to it, um, she found that it had, it had been abandoned for like 30 years, and nobody had really kept up, kept it up. And so it, it basically had become kind of like a, a trash dump or a toilet um, for people passing through the cemetery to the wholesale market. Because, you know, this, the, the, the grave, is, the whole graveyard itself is not enclosed. And so people regularly walk back and forth through there. So people, you know, would toss trash or whatever. And so the, the gravestones were buried under this, you know, kind of pile of trash. And so when she saw it, she, you know, she was like moved to tears, you know, of, you know, the condition of, of buried here. And so she tried to um, raise money from, Different Chinese organizations um, in Tanzania to to clean to clean the to clean the cemetery to restore it to repaint the uh, the entrance. Um, she hired a, a local restaurant owner to kind of like guard the place, and um, basically was just trying. And then also began to try to look into the history. Well, who were these people? Um, where did they go? And the fact that they had you know been given land by the local Muslim community suggested that there might have been a, a close relationship between the Chinese community and this Manyama community back before independence. And, and, and it was me and several other Chinese researchers who also happened to be doing research on my topic while I was there, so we were kind of, we were kind of working together at the time. And we were all thinking, wow, this is a really, might have a really, if we can look into the history of this, it might be a really interesting perspective on contemporary relationships. Um, and the fact that nobody knew about it was fascinating. Like these traces uh, that nobody knew about. And so we were trying to trace people who had, who had interaction with those people, um, back in the fifties. And it's an ongoing project that's continuing even today because we're trying to track down people, but most of the second generation left. Um, those who came at the time, they were involved in farming. So they had several farms around Dar es Salaam, um, growing, um, various local vegetables. Um, raising animals. Um, some were carpenters, and 
And a lot of them eventually left in the late 60s to come to the UK, to Canada, somewhere in the US. And I've been, we've been trying to find them um, through like, you know, emailing these uh, Chinese associations in England. But it, so far, no one's really responded. I mean, it's a very, it's a very small group. I, I would want to hear the stories of, you know, their parents, in, you know, in Tanzania at the time. But, um, but I mean, and that's how, you know, I came again to the peanut story of how maybe this guy had been associated with that, but he might not have been. But what was interesting though is eventually, um, we did find that there is a farm right next to Carriaco in the middle of the city, um, that had been owned by a Chinese woman, um, who came to Tanzania in like the late 1930s alone. Um, and her husband stayed behind in China. And, but she came to Tanzania and started a farm in the middle of Dar es Salaam. And lived there until 1976. And later, her two, her two, or either two or three sons joined her in Tanzania. Hello. Okay, I think someone dropped out of the yeah. conversation. Yeah, and they came and joined her, and uh, and eventually, in around 76, um, she sold the property to a to a Tanzanian man who still lives at the property. And um, and I interviewed him, and he, he said that, oh yeah, you know, like. When he bought the property, um, she was still, still waiting for her UK visa to go through, and so, um, but she said that they could live together for four months. And so she, he lived with this woman for four months. And he said at the time she was like in her sixties. He says, "Oh, she was a very nice woman, and you know, and and she, she cooked food for them, and and everyone knew her because everyone would buy vegetables from her. She, she grew really good vegetables, and it was fascinating because you know I'd, I'd been in Carriaco for a whole year." And all about all oh, the Chinese, it's, it's all it's a new presence, um, so unexpected. And then just right down the hill is this farm, which had been owned by a Chinese woman in like the 40s. And so it's this, and, and people won't tell you that, but as soon as you begin to ask, people will be like, oh yeah, I remember, you know. And so it's, there's a lot of interesting kind of like, um, almost like semi invisible traces that are kind of there in the landscape that you kind of have to kind of pick around to discover. And, and a lot of people don't know about it, so it was, it, was, it was quite fascinating for me and the other people I was working with to sort of discover these kinds of um, traces that people had forgotten about, but which, which then kind of resurface every now and then. And these such things as strange rumors about peanuts, for example. So, yeah. That is fascinating, and something I want to bring up, hopefully, in a future pod because we are out of time. Oh, so. Wow. I am wondering if you can give a recommendation to our listeners. I can. Um, a, a good book, I think, which came out in 2015 um, from the anthropologist James Ferguson, who's a well-known anthropologist of, of Africa, uh, mostly in Southern Africa. But he wrote a book um, last year, and the title of the book is Give a Man a Fish. <laughs> okay. Um, Give a Man a and, Fish? And, of course, you might recognize the reference, you know, you know you don't give a man a fish, you teach a man a fish. But his basic argument is that, um, given the fact, he basically makes a very provocative argument that um, there has been a, a bias in sort of thinking about developments and about poverty, about production. Is that the only way you're able to make yourself a valuable member of society is if you produce. <laughs> and so there's always efforts to, you know, to industrialize, to give employment. But he says the actual 
actually exists in the reality of lots of people in Southern Africa and the same word apply in Tanzania. And not just Africa, but many places in the world, is precarity of labor, unemployment. And the fact is most people, they get by not through wage labor, but just through um, social networks, through relying on people, through, you know, distribution. And he says that actually um, we need to change how we think about, you know, economic personhood from production to distribution. And a lot of distributional labor happens. And this is interesting because a lot of um, Chinese who do business in, in Tanzania will often complain, wow, you know, people are always asking for things. They're asking for things. You know, like, but but and here Ferguson's arguing that, well, actually, there might actually be a different way of thinking about sort of social ethics of distribution. And, he's, and, he, and he argues that if you look at programs like in Brazil, uh, Bolsa Familia, like you know, cash transfer programs, where basically you know, a lot of economists now are basically saying, why not just give money to the poor? You know, and like just give people money and let them decide how to use that money. And so he's arguing that this other logic is now becoming more and more a way of economic thinking. And so it's sort of a creative way of sort of dealing with uh, new ways of thinking about the welfare state, um, but in a new context in which, as he claims, you know, the dream of, of employment is pretty much dead. I mean, that, that's controversial. It's very controversial, right? So, but but it's provocative, and I think it's interesting because. We assume that, oh, okay, if you're not working, you must, you don't deserve, you don't deserve, like, you're not working, so why should we give you something? Okay, you know, women and children, we can give to cash transfers, but you're a man, you shouldn't be working. And he's arguing that, we, so we, need, we actually need to rethink this. That actually, it doesn't actually reflect actual lived reality for most people, not just in Africa, but in the, in the world. And I'm like, wow, it's quite provocative. And so I think it's, it's an interesting book to read. And I think, um, it's, it'll provoke discussion. So I really recommend it. It's called Give a Man a Fish. And it just came out last year. And I think it's, I forget the name of the publisher, but just James, James Ferguson. Wow, wonderful. Yep. Like, very provocative I, indeed. It's indeed a very, um, I think, fundamental or influential anthropologist. And I think like every good anthropologist um, who challenges us to um, challenge, uh, to, you know, to turn this assumptions upside down and downside up and upside down and on and on. <laughs> Lovely eating. What about yourself? Um, I'm good for today. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> not, not, I, um, oh, well, not, not even like the mermaid. Um, the mermaid. <laughs> yeah. Stephen Chow's oh, new oh, movie. movie. Yeah. Ah, I haven't watched it. Um, okay, so apparently had um, broken the um, the office box, the box office record in China again. Um, but I think we've heard a mixed um, commentaries on how good the movie actually is. Um, but as far as I am concerned, um, it actually deals with environmental pressures and, and environmental conflicts in Hong Kong. So, um, for that, I would recommend people to watch it. So, eating, are you going to get Stephen Chow on the pod to discuss the movie <laughs> and China Africa in general? Um, let me talk to his secretary and see what we can come up with. Hey, Mr. Chow, if you're listening, you're always welcome. We, 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 we await your answer. Okay, all right. Then, um, as for me, I am going to recommend a 
podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. There's three podcasts I listen to religiously, and this is one of them. Uh, the Seneca podcast, their latest episode, is about um, uh, it's about a lot of things. Discussion on spying, but also a discussion on uh, Broadway play Allegiance, which is about uh, Japanese American internment camp during World War II, and using that to discuss how people of uh, Chinese heritage their experiences in the U.S. And uh, in case you are following our U.S. presidential politics at all, and you obviously are if you listen to this China Africa podcast, uh, we are having um, uh, we are having an, an, uh, a real uh, a real reckoning of how we deal uh, of how the U.S. deals with um, with non-white folks. And I am so happy that... May, may, may I go on the record of publicly... I, I disavow Donald Trump. <laughs> Just on the record. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> and um, this podcast deals with um, uh, some, some really um, important issues and, and issues that deal with, uh, with Chinese living abroad generally. And it's... Um, it's a it's a really strong pod, and I believe Kaiser Guo's brother is one of the writers for um, the Broadway show Allegiance. So just listen to the podcast and watch uh, Allegiance as well, and and, and support Asian American theater. Um, that's about it, uh, Derek. Before we sign off, how do people find you on the internet? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Um, I have a blog. Um... Derek Sheridan, is my name, and in, in lowercase, um, at uh, WordPress. Though I, I haven't really updated it in a long time, because, uh, because basically I, I have been blogging, but I've been I've been advised uh, because of um, IRB concerns. I can't talk too much about my research. <laughs> like so, it was like okay, I need to. And so then I just stopped blogging. I got, I got, I got demotivated, but I, I I will try to resume that. Well, <laughs> Everybody is looking forward to it. You are one of the most um, most intelligent and insightful China Africa researchers I know. So I'm very interested in, in seeing what you are can put out that won't get anybody uh, arrested or deported. Um, eating, how do people find you? Mad. Okay, <laughs> I think uh, eating uh, we lost her connection. Okay. So I um, eating her. You can find her on her Twitter account, uh, which is at Dao of the Pooh. So uh, Dao is in Taoism, and then Pooh is as in Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and she is a, a fine China Africa tweeter um, and a really terrific um, China environment tweeter. So just follow her on Twitter, please. And then I myself can be found on cowrysrice.blogspot.com and www.cowrysrice.com, the latter site housing my fledgling China African consultancy. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I tweet about China African news, events, opinions, and arcana. Uh, this week has been pretty bad for me on Twitter. I was really busy, and I didn't, um, I didn't, I, I didn't tweet as much as I should have. But there's, uh, but that's okay because you let I, us down. You're just done. I'm. I'm almost done. I. I eating. I. I. I mentioned your Twitter account, but if you want, you can mention it now, and I can edit it in. 
Oh, no worries. No, I said, I, I, I didn't say you're down. I said you you let us down for now ah, being so active on Twitter. I did, yes. I, I did, um, and for, for that I apologize, and I... I, I want to say it'll never happen again, but it'll probably happen again. Um, and that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Derek for joining us from New York. Are you in New York or Rhode Island? I'm in Providence. <laughs> for joining us from Rhode I- Providence. I should, I should be more excited. I'm in Providence. Providence! Providence. <laughs> uh, yeah. As well as African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, uh, iTunes, and uh, Buzzsprout. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio from the Como Illinois Share Podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.